You're listening to the Business as Usual podcast, your weekly discussion of all things business, finance, and personal finance. And now, here's your host, Jason Hughes. Hey guys, and welcome to Business as Usual, episode six. I'm here with Matt this week. How are you, Matt? I'm going well. Jace, how are we doing? Yeah, we're good. We're good. Um, it's been a while since we've recorded. Yeah, I mean, it was, what, the weekend just gone. Well, where were you again? Yeah, I was in Perth, so yeah, we didn't get to record. So it feels like we haven't spoken in ages. <laughs> yeah, it has. Yeah, so um, what did you get up to the last week and over the weekend? So I've actually done a little bit of trading, uh, believe it or not. Oh, nice. Yeah, so I've I've had to exit a couple of positions. I reduced my size in Afterpay up near the yep. 21, which was good. I'm very happy with that one. Yeah, because that popped about a week and a half ago, didn't it? Yeah, it did. Yeah, it did. So I was hoping to take some off there, which was good. So I took off half, hoping to take the other half off between 23 and 27. And I also looked at uh, Bellamy's. I also got to reduce some of my size in Bellamy's as well up into the pop pop near 11 so yeah oh, very cool. happy with that that's good yeah what about yourself what have you been up to um i've like i said on the last episode i've in recruiting season for the investment bank so i had a networking event at an investment bank last week and got another one tomorrow night networking. Um, so <laughs> yeah i mean like i've had some really interesting conversations with some of the bankers there. I don't, I don't think I should mention any names just in case. Yeah. Um, but the CEO of equities at one of the banks came down to one of uh, the event last week and I had a quite a long conversation with him then. And it kind of, that was, yeah, a week ago. And that's when we started researching this episode and what kind of inspired this episode. So that's awesome. Yeah, this episode, how do you, how do you get along that. to these networking events? Um, look, they're all advertised through universities and through the clubs at university uh, okay i see like the student societies because they're aimed specifically at recruiting yeah um so you you go in they all sort of run the same way you go in and hr gives a presentation about how do you apply for their internship and what programs do they run and yep. all of this stuff and then sometimes they'll have a couple of the bankers give some presentations as well about what their department does <coughs> and um, what they're looking for and all this stuff. And then they, we, you sort of break off into some networking at the end. And um, the ones at the offices are usually pretty good because you'll have maybe 40 people there and they can bring down like 10 or 15 bankers. So That's pretty awesome. Yeah, so like the, the um, student to rep ratio is pretty good. Whereas at some of the other events, it's... Um, like you'll have 15 people standing around one person and it's just like absolutely useless. Yeah, definitely. But anyway, so uh, yeah, having that conversation with the head of equities prompted this sort of uh, interest of what the market actually looks like <coughs> and who's trading in the market and who's doing what in the market because it's definitely completely different to what you get, the sort of idea you get as a, retail investor and as someone looking for ways to invest as a retail investor or even as a small trader um, it's completely different to what is sort of out there so 
Um, I thought we'd do an, an episode on it because you have a bit of a bit of information from your trading about some of the things that go on in the institutional space and obviously from uh, my reading and some of the conversations I've had, I've got a bit of other information. So I thought it'd be a good good one to do. Yeah. No, so it's... do you want to kick it off with sort of what what is an institutional trader? <clears throat> yeah, sure. So basically... In, sorry, an institutional trader we're talking about. Okay. So, yeah, basically an institutional trader is someone that trades for uh, a very large fund. So, they've got lots and lots of size that they would need to fill. They're moving uh, millions of shares. And this is the difficulty um, that comes with being an institutional trader. So, because of that, they have to find these systems in order to actually fill their trades without actually being visible in the market that they're actually trying to take or drop a position. Yeah. So you're looking at things like hedge funds, <clears throat> superannuation funds here in Australia at least, um, or pension funds uh, in other places in the world. Um, you're looking at banks, so like investment banks and commercial banks, and uh, large brokers as well. Yeah. So yeah, pretty much all of those guys are trying to trade the market and compete with each other for the best price. Most of the time, you know, they're trying to fill the same positions and stuff, but they're trying to get in at the best price price possible. Yeah. And so some of them are trading on their own book. So you'll have, for example, a hedge fund is trade, trading its own book. Um, so they have a strategy that they market to investors. Investors put some money into the fund and the hedge fund manager and traders go out and try to execute that strategy and return a good return to their investors. Whereas you've also got um, other, other institutions like the investment banks, so that your Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and JP Morgans that are making markets. And there's actually um, a list of, I know at least for the uh, New York Stock Exchange, there's a list of companies or institutions, we should say, that are actually designated market makers. And what they have is actually a group of stocks that they are responsible for making a market in. And what that basically means is providing liquidity. Yeah. So they will sit there and provide both bid and asks. So if you want to go and trade in whatever stock, whatever obscure stock, you're going to be able to trade in it. <coughs> and the reason why that's a thing is because you... Or the reason why exchanges try to encourage market making is because you want liquidity on an exchange. And if you know that you can sell your stock instantly on the New York Stock Exchange, that's where you're going to go. And yeah. so companies will be more likely to want to list on the NYSE. The NYSE makes money um, because they charge uh, fees for trading on, on their exchange. And so the more people who are trading there, the more money they're making. Um, so they have a, they have an interest in getting market makers 
onto their exchange. Yeah. And of course, you know, like if you were to have human traders trying to make these markets for all of these stocks, you know, it's not that practical. You'd have to have hundreds of traders no, uh, in, order, yeah, so, in mean, order to do this. So, yeah, I mean, the NYSE has how many stocks on it? Uh, thousands. I'm going to say 20,000 as a guess. Um, no, there's actually only 2,800 <coughs> companies on the NYSE. There you go. I thought there'd be more. Yeah, but that's that's still a lot of companies. Definitely. And to make markets for, you know, a large portion of those, it's not yeah. practical to have a person for each each stock. So, And yeah. I mean, the person itself would find it very difficult to make the market by themselves with all the other participants yeah. in the market. So the only real practical way is through computers. Yeah. Um, but I just wanted to sort of take a step back and just point out that exchanges are businesses. And this is going to become uh, relevant towards the end of our conversation when we talk about high-frequency trading. But it, it's important to understand that exchanges are businesses that facilitate the trading of stocks. <coughs> because a stock is just ownership in a company. And there's no... At least I don't think there's any reason why a stock should be traded on an exchange. Um, like if you own, at least if you own a non-public company that's not listed on an exchange, um, say you've started a, a business and you have shares in it, you don't have to go to an exchange to trade those shares. You can just sell them to your friend and give him the share certificate. And like, that's that. It's just like, buying anything else yeah the reason we have markets is because we have millions of shares out there billions of shares out there and so the the markets provide liquidity it it encourages investment in companies and allows companies to grow and increases gdp and whatever whatever uh, makes life better that's why we have the exchanges but exchanges are businesses and they're competing for for trading uh, volume. And I mean, I guess you uh, don't really see it here in Australia that much because we only have two exchanges. We've got the ASX and we've got the CHI. So, yeah, actually, there is another one. There's the... Oh, um, there's there? Yeah, I think it's called the National Stock Exchange of Australia. Okay, I wasn't aware. Yeah, so it's called the NSX. Okay. Um, but there's... How much volume does it do? Oh, not a lot. Because on my um, my previous reading, the ASX did about ninety percent of the volume, and the Chiax did about ten percent of the volume. Yeah. Um. So, the market cap of the NSX is four point six billion dollars. So it, it's very small. It is very small. Yeah. Um. There was another one that was last year. They were making some noise about opening another exchange as well. Yeah. Um. And this is one of the things we'll get to. There's advantages to having fragmented markets because you have competition between exchanges um, and that means that the exchange gets cheaper to trade on because of competition. So exchange gets cheaper to trade on. The technology at the exchanges gets better. Um, and yeah, so because of the competition between exchanges, spreads get closer. And so the, the bid ask spreads get closer. And so your price discovery gets better. But yeah. then the, the drawbacks of multiple exchanges is that you have 
a difference in timing that um, orders get to the different exchanges. Yeah. And brokers have to make decisions about where they send uh, orders from their customers. See. And so this creates opportunities for um, algorithmic traders to sort of rig the markets. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Yeah. I mean, I've noticed this myself, actually, the differences between exchanges. Mine was actually a negative. I'd actually tried to place uh, an order. I can't remember if it was a, a buy or a sell. Um, I think it was a sell actually on Bub. And what I seen on the screen was the ASX uh, buying depth. Yeah. But I actually got filled on the Chi-X. Yeah. So I got filled uh, at a, a a better price, I think, or a worse price. Um, I think it was a worse price because I'd gotten filled on the Chi-X and the ASX had actually disappeared um, because yeah. it was an algorithmic trader. So they completely disappeared and I got filled on the Chi-X. I ended up calling up Westpac and asking, yeah. you know, what's the go? Why did I get filled at this price? And they said, no, you got filled on the Chi-X. So I guess that's yeah. not, not not so much, I guess, an, uh, a negative of having the two exchanges because I got filled at the best price possible. But what I seen on the on the sell depth, sorry, on the buy depth was actually on the ASX by one of these high frequency trades. And you know, I got duped into trying to sell into them. Yeah. So this is this is one of the things is and we'll get we'll get into it a little bit later, but high frequency trading, like I think it's probably a good idea to um at least define what we're talking about when we say high frequency trading and algo trading. Yeah. I think I think maybe we'll start at the very yeah. beginning with do you want yeah. to start at discretional first and then we'll move Sure. I mean this isn't done so much anymore. Uh, because it's usually taken up by algorithmic trading. But for people like myself with very small accounts, uh, most of the trading that I do is discretional trading, which means that I see something in the market, um, basically through experience of just looking at the screen all day, you end up seeing patterns and whatnot, and then you place trades based on those. Um, So that's the, the lowest level of discretional trading that you can get. Is basically a monkey, a monkey at the computer, and you're slapping keys and placing trades all day. Basically, the next yeah. step, I guess, is a merge between discretional trading and algorithmic trading. So, I know a, a few people out there that don't like to place orders with an algorithmic uh, trading machine. They like to just basically get uh, alerts sent to them when they're trade criteria is basically met and then they'll go yeah. ahead and trace the place the trade themselves because yeah. that's much more simple to program in a those sets of uh, rules as opposed to actually trying to compete with other algorithmic trades traders sorry to try and place your order into the market yeah absolutely. Um, and also if you're if you're trying to build an algorithm to trade for you you need to find a broker that's um, you're able to plug into and send your orders to and for sure um, get a get an actual like sort of fee structure that uh, you can afford and exactly so it's, it's it's not easy to do so like no I, I I do know there's a a few novice traders out there that just use a a basic alert system to let them know when uh you know a trade trade can be placed and it might be even something as simple as you know, a 50-day moving average uh, crosses the 200-day and they get alerted to that. 
that in yeah, is so the technical most, analysis. That's basically. yeah, basically, it's the most simple uh, example of an algorithmic uh, trading machine. Is basically alerts that you can already get sent now. It does get way more complicated as you move from discretional to strictly algorithmic trading, where basically when you have strictly algorithmic uh, trading, you, the order is placed as well into the market. So not only does it identify the trading opportunity, but it also enters the market for you. And yeah, it actually places the trading yeah, for you. I mean, it has to decide how much size to put on, when to put that size on, um, and there's a whole bunch of, you know, various factors in there in order to actually get filled at the best price. And I guess that's the most complicated thing with algorithmic trading and why it's so competitive. The reason algorithmic trading pops up in the market is kind of obvious. It's because you've got all this information out there in the market and it's, it's just getting more and more and more information where you, you've got volumes and you've got moving averages and you've got, uh, all these indicators that you can put on. But a person can only really look at one piece of information at a time um, and look at one chart at a time. Exactly. Whereas a computer can, especially modern computers, they can run like 10 different things at a time and do calculations of millions and millions of times a second. So the information processing is so much better in a computer that it just makes sense. But the um, uh, um, as you said, it, the difficult part is building the execution into the trade strategy um, rather than like the, the, the strategies are out there. You can go and read on uh, the internet for all different types of trading strategies. That's all the, that information is there, but figuring out how do I make a computer do this is the difficult part. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it also like algorithmic trading systems. They not only like, you know, get you filled at the best price, but a massive problem with us humans are, you know, we're constantly constantly in competition with our minds on what we should do and what we feel like we should do. So yep. we've got this emotional and psychological uh, factor that sort of um, works against us when we're actually trading. And yeah, basically this sort of re reduces that. In addition to that, I've actually seen, I mean, I've done it a couple of times myself. It's called a fat finger trade. Yeah. So you basically, you put on an extra zero or you put the price too high and you actually take out multiple lines in the buying or the selling depth. Yeah. And people can see that. And it's basically just a trader being stupid and yeah. placing an incorrect trade. And you see them all the time. You know, they put an extra too many zeros and bam, like the market, it shot up, you know, 5% <laughs> yeah. and have taken out millions of dollars. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and just even if it's not do, affecting the market hugely or whatever, if you're planning to do a trade and you've got a system figured out and then you make a mistake there, like you, your trading's just, it may work out in your favor, but probably it's not going to work out in your favor. Um, so m letting a computer... Uh, implement your strategy for you is just going to remove those mistakes. Yeah, exactly. So do you want to just go over maybe a couple sort of basic strategies that an algorithm might implement? Obviously, there's a lot of strategies at all the different 
uh, funds are using and a lot of them are highly secretive anyway. So we probably don't really know what's happening in the market anyway. Exactly. But just uh, maybe something like simple like a mean reversion or yeah, a VWAP strategy just so we can give an idea. Yeah, so basically I would say some of the most typical ones that I've seen in the market is probably ones surrounding the the VWAP, uh, which is basically, for anyone who doesn't know, it's the volume-weighted average price. So it's the true average price, I would say, for the day because it's based on you know the amount of shares that have been sold and bought. Yeah, so it's calculating the the price for the day by saying, if say if there's 10 shares bought at $10 a share and one share bought at, I don't know, $20 per share. Like the average is much closer to 10 than 20. Exactly. If you were to do, yeah, the average is, is completely different Yeah. Um, if you have more trades in there. But it's it's basically when, when I'm trading, you're closely monitoring the VWAP because it's a very important line on the chart. Um, it's basically what the institutions are trying to buy around. And that's why it's so important because they're, they're trying to get filled at, you know, the average price for a given volume. Yeah. So it's, it's basically what they try and trade around. And you'll see that when the chart actually approaches VWAP, you get a lot of volatility as the bots, you know, turn on. So if it's yeah. coming down, say, you'll get a lot of buying action trying to support it off VWAP. But then you'll also get bots that are, are trying to compete with that and trying to sell it through VWAP. And then once it's gone through VWAP, it's actually getting sold down quite heavily. And that's that's something that you see quite a bit. So so that's sort of one of the strategies that yeah, you so can do. It's basically it tries to it tries to fill a position as close to VWAP as possible. And it also looks for mo- momentum surrounding VWAP, whether it's bouncing off it or yep. breaking below it. Those are the most yeah. important. So say a stock is trading at, um, say, $10.20 and the VWAP's at $10. Like, What would a trading strategy look like? Like, What's an institution looking to do there? So, I mean, it doesn't always revert back to VWAP. If it's above VWAP, it just indicates that people are willing to buy it above the average price for the day. So you sort of got a little bit of momentum to the upside then? It basically, yeah, tells you momentum's to the upside at that point. Um, okay. So I guess this sort of goes into mean reversion, but once you get too far from VWAP, people don't like to try and buy there. Yep. So they'll wait for a reversion back to VWAP in order to actually start buying again. So you'll get a lot of yep. sort of staircasing up as it reverts back to VWAP um, on a on a stock that has positive momentum. Yeah. So what's maybe some other uh, trading, trading at an algorithm can do is maybe something that's a, a bit more complex that needs an algorithm to do it um, rather than a person. Uh, I'd probably say probably arbitrage opportunities mm-hmm. where you've got a dual listed stock on basically two exchanges. Yep. It's needing to see or read that market depth uh, for both the same stock, sorry, on those two different exchanges. And then it's yep. trying to take advantage of the price differences between those two different exchanges. So it's an incredibly yep. fast uh, trade and that's sort of what leads into high frequency trading. But there's a lot of factors that need to get, be taken into because obviously when you buy on one exchange, 
it needs to, well, it might not necessarily be available then on the other exchange. So it needs to be done with yep. incredible accuracy and speed in actually to place those trades. Yeah. And I guess like if you're trading, say there's, there's a stock that's trading in Hong Kong and in uh, New York. Yeah. And there's an arbitrage opportunity there. There's also a currency exchange that has to happen there. So you've got to say buy and sell stocks, but you've also got to buy and sell currency to lock in uh, currency conversion or even futures on uh, currency. So you're locking in that currency conversion. And so you've got a ton of stuff going on there and arbitrage opportunities disappear super, super quickly because they're arbitrage opportunities. They're risk-free. Um, so just basic market mechanics is going to say that that opportunity is going to disappear. So you've got to work super, super fast and it's, it's quite a complex trade. Uh, to make happen like I, I would have to go and study how to lock in a, a currency conversion and um, make sure that I'm doing it all right and by the time I've looked at everything uh, the opportunity's gone the market's exactly. moved again and I mean there's there's a couple of others that were I found that were interesting that I didn't actually know about yeah but they're called uh, they're known as like sniffing algorithms so it just basically yeah. detects the existence of another algorithm and then tries to basically work against that other algorithm so it knows that that algorithm is trying to buy shares and try to fill a position yeah so it will front run that algorithmic uh system by buying the shares and then selling it back to it yeah and that's basically the high frequency trading going on again but it's competing yeah, with that's another algorithm. high frequency trading yeah. but i mean in for like in order to actually do it first it needs to detect that there's actually a buyer as opposed to a yeah. seller and then front run that position and then sell it back to them in the space yeah. of a couple of seconds. Well, not sorry, a couple of seconds, nanoseconds really. That, and that, that kind of takes us straight into high frequency trading. So we might as well jump in there. Yeah, that's a good idea. So high frequency trading is, I guess, to differentiate algo trading and high frequency trading. Um, al algo trading is doing a sort of more traditional style of trading. So it's looking at how stocks are moving, maybe some uh, fundamental data about stocks, and it's just using a computer to execute trades. Because high-frequency trading is looking at what we call market microstructure. And essentially what market microstructure is, is looking at how stocks are actually traded. So when you hit the... Uh, buy now button on your brokerage account that information goes somewhere and eventually that information gets into the um, into the exchange and the exchange's matching uh, system matches you to a, a seller and that get and so you get the shares and then that information is brought back to you so you know you've got the shares um, and high-frequency traders, I mean, you can't really talk about traders, you're talking about computers, are getting in the middle of that information transfer and trading based on that information. Um, and that's what we call market microstructure. So different, trade, different exchanges have different trading rules. So say if, say me and you were to both submit a buy order at the exact same moment 
like which one of us needs to be filled first. So there's there needs to be rules set up. So okay, well if you've got a bigger order, you need to be filled first, or if you've got a smaller order, you need to be filled first. Like that's the decision that an exchange makes, um, just so that their computers can actually match the orders and fill fill some people first, or some people get pu- pushed back in the queue. And so an understanding of that can give opportunities for very sophisticated algorithms to make money. Uh, exchanges like the New York Stock Exchange are incredibly, incredibly complex. So I was, I was looking today. So you know, you've got kind of two types of orders. Yeah. So you've got market orders and you've got limit orders. Um, so market orders are um, essentially you, you place an order to buy or sell a certain amount of security and when that gets to the order, it'll when that gets to the exchange, it will get executed at whatever the say you're buying, it gets executed at whatever the uh, best asking price is, and so you're basically guaranteed to get uh, filled on your order. But if your if the market moves in between when you press buy to when the exchange's matching algorithm gets your order you could lose ground on that on that trade. Um, whereas a limit order sets a price that you will buy for. So say a stock's trading at $20, you can place a limit order for $20. And if by the time your order gets to the exchange, it's now trading at $21, your order won't be filled and you won't lose that ground. But obviously you're, you're running the risk of not being filled in an order. And I mean, I've seen this a lot in my trading as well. Like I never place market orders. I always place limit orders. And I'd be trying to enter a position of a stock that's running up quite hard. And I'm, I'll be constantly getting front run by an algorithmic uh, trader. So basically I'll try and do that exact same thing. I'll try and buy ahead of the market. And by the time my slow fingers have actually entered in the trade and I've placed the trade, the, alg- the algorithm basically takes out all of the uh, asks above me and I can't actually buy in. And I keep doing that. I've done that. I think sometimes I, I would do it like five times and I would just give up. I'd be like, okay, the trade opportunity is gone. Yeah. And so this is, um, well, like there, so there's two types of orders that the regular person knows about. But on the NYSE, there's something like 40 different types of orders you can submit. Well, um, and they're all sort of, they're dependent on each other. So you place a limit order with all these conditions attached to it. Um, and it ju- it's just incredibly complex. And for a regular person, you just can't understand all these types of orders. And when you're looking at trading opportunity, like you can't, there's no way you can process all the different types of orders, what you could do with them and all the stuff. But a computer can do that. And so the computers are taking advantage of this and you don't know it. And so you keep bringing up front running. And that is uh, when high frequency trading was first coming on the market. This was one of the things that uh, they were they were doing first. And basically what it's doing is taking information about someone's trading. And then it's um, adjusting prices based on that information that they've got. So say if you go to 
um, say if you go to a car dealer and you say, oh, I want to buy a 2016 Toyota Hilux with all these options and whatnot. Um, I'm willing to pay, I don't, I don't know how much a Hilux costs. So. I don't know, say $30,000. $30,000. And the dealer says, oh, no, I don't actually have one of those in stock, but this guy across town does. Um, so if you go over there, I know he's got one. He, it's like in the lot right now. You could go and go there and buy it. And so you get in your car and you go drive there. What you don't know is the guy across town was selling that Hilux at $20,000. But the guy you just spoke to is going to call him up and say, hey, there's a guy coming, wants to pay $30,000 for this car. Like, go change your sign quickly. Yeah. Or, I mean, you've had someone in before that's come through and bought all the Hiluxes. And then you go to the next spot and that person has bought all those Hiluxes and it just keeps yeah. on going until yeah. there's no Hiluxes left. Yeah. So, like, you get either stopped from getting into the market or the prices literally get changed because people know your order is coming. Yeah. And the way they were doing this in the US, at least, where they have a fragmented market, essentially you have, say, in New York, you have the New York Stock Exchange um, and you have... A bunch of other exchanges. So you had BATS back in the day. I think that's now closed. It's a bunch of other exchanges. And so what was happening was you were traders didn't need to know where the shares were offered. So if you're if you're Joe Blog sitting at Goldman Sachs and you're just trading, you don't need to know if there's a hundred shares on BATS and three thousand shares on NYSE or whatever. So they built their systems just to show, all right, well, there's 3,100 shares of um, Apple being offered at 20 bucks a share. Just obviously, um, prices are not accurate, but say there's 3,100 shares of Apple offered at 20 bucks a share, and your trading strategy is telling you, I need to buy, um, I need to buy 3,100 shares of Apple at 20 bucks a share. So you say, cool, I'm going to buy that. Now, what happens though is that order gets sent out and part of it gets, that same order gets sent to BATS, same order gets sent to NYSE. Uh, but BATS is closer to where your computer is. So literally the, or, like the little electrons running along the wire or the, the light if you're using uh, fiber optic cables gets to BATS first a HFT firm sees that there's 3,100 share order come through at 20 bucks a share on BATS. Obviously, you only get filled on 100 shares because there's only 100 shares on BATS. But by the time your order gets to the NYSE, uh, the HFT firm has adjusted the price to 25 bucks. They've just changed their order. And so you're going to lose money on your trades because the information you're seeing, you're, the depth that you're seeing, isn't the depth that is there when your order gets to the exchanges because there's a difference in timing between when your your orders are getting there and the HFT firms are just faster. Yeah. And I mean, you see this, you see this with um, this front-running phenomenon with just discretional traders as well. So you'll see that, you know, someone might be trying to fill a big order at a certain price and as they get front run, you can actually visibly see them getting more frustrated 
as their order size increases. It's pretty funny. It's pretty funny to watch. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So basically, HFT traders were setting up, and if you want to, if you want to read about this, it's it, there's a book by Michael Lewis. He wrote The Big Short. Um, it's called Flash Boys, and it it describes this happening and some of the the major players that saw this happening, and they were they were just sort of dumbfounded because they actually started calling up their um, tech department <laughs> and saying like my computer is wrong because every time I try to place a trade, the volume that I'm seeing being offered is disappearing. Yeah. Or it's moving up in price. And like that's just I can't I can't make money if I'm trading like this. So that they literally were calling their tech departments up to come and have a look at it because they thought their computers were wrong. But what was actually happening was there were these HFT firms which were just relying on speed to yeah. uh, be better in the market. So it got it got crazy enough that so the NYSE is there's there's obviously the the trading floor, the famous trading floor in Manhattan. But I think the data center for the NYSE and where the trading actually happens these days is in New, in New Jersey. Um, so all the computers that are matching the orders and whatnot, they're in New Jersey. And they're in this giant, giant warehouse because the NYSE realized that they could sell space in that warehouse for like millions and millions of dollars a year because people want to place their computers as close to the matching computer as possible. <laughs> and literally, it makes a difference whether you're on one side of the room or the other side of the room. Because we're talking about microseconds or even probably today we're talking about nanoseconds. Um, and it's just, it's an insanely fast amount of time. Like yeah. it, it's it's crazy. Like I was reading, it takes you 400 nano. 400 milliseconds, sorry, on average to blink your eyes. And that's like, that's, so a millisecond is a thousandth of a second. But we're talking either millionths of a second or trillionths of a second that yeah. these traders are operating on. So, and I mean, you think about it, like in terms of me down here in Wollongong and my server being up in Sydney, my ping, which is my response time for my computer, was four milliseconds. Now that that's incredibly quick for a ping, but that's that's uh that's four thousand microseconds. And I mean, that obviously changes the closer you go to Sydney. Yeah, yeah. And so if you're right next to the exchange, um, like yeah, you, you can. I mean, you could be working on, say, a couple of millis, a uh, couple of microseconds, and you've got an extra three thousand nine hundred and ninety-eight microseconds on me in terms to to actually compute that trade and change that price yeah. for my order. Yeah. So it's um. So it all it all comes down to this incredibly incredibly fast time, and I mean, for for you down in Wollongong, like you're trading, looking at. Um, like what? What's your data refreshing at? Like every second or so? I'm not sure exactly. I can't remember what what it's actually at. Um, it's whatever. But like whatever Spark offers, yeah. Yeah. So like so, I know I I used to do some trading through CMC markets, and I think that's that's probably updating every second. 
Yeah. As far as I remember, it wasn't updating very fast. Um, so there's a million microseconds in a second. Yeah. And so there's literally thousands of trades that a computer can make in the time that I'm seeing one tick in the price. Yeah. And so, um, you know, the, have you ever heard of the flash crash in 2010? Uh, yes, I have. So essentially what it was for people who don't know is there was this one day where suddenly the, I think it was, it mostly affected the Dow Jones, but obviously all the markets were affected where say the Dow Jones dropped like a thousand points and then climbed a thousand points in the space of like a few minutes. And yeah. there were stocks, there were stocks that would, were trading at like, say like maybe a hundred bucks and then they dropped to zero and then went all the way up to like $99,000 and <laughs> dropped back down to what they were trading at before in the space of a couple of minutes. And yeah. it's just like insane uh, trading that essentially what it was is there were some uh, algorithms that just got out of control and they were getting these signals. Um, they were getting these signals from the market and they started trading on these signals and they were all feeding into each other's signals. And so they're all basically trading on each other and it just went crazy. But by the end of the day, like the, the market was back at roughly the same thing, same price that it was, but it was just this huge, huge crash that happened. But I guess that's the problem with when you have all those algorithms that hadn't actually been, uh, programmed for those market conditions correctly. Yeah. And then you have to wait until you experience those market conditions and actually, you know, to be able to actually fix your algorithm again yeah if, if you don't and, have that data already in the back testing yeah and actually nowadays um most exchanges around the world i would probably assume all sophisticated exchanges around the world actually have circuit breakers built in so if they detect these sorts of things happening they'll actually just sort of suspend trading um really quickly to because like these sorts of things can cost everyday investors a lot of money because if you're if you're down um say you're in like you're in Wollongong say if you've got maybe like I don't know like tens of thousands of dollars in BHP stock and you decide now that you're going to go and buy a house and you're going to take those tens of thousands of dollars out of your BHP stock and use that for your house deposit and in the moment that you click your sell order and you've like done a market order because you, you don't know much, you're just a, like, you're just a regular, just a pleb, like just, yeah, like you're just a normal person who doesn't know about limit orders or market orders or whatever. You've just like invested in BHP because you heard that BHP was a good company or whatever. You could lose like your entire investment because of the slippage if a flash crash happened right at that moment. So a lot of, exchanges will have circuit breakers built in these days to stop this sort of thing happening. I was going to say like some, some traders I've seen when they actually want to enter a position, they'll actually take advantage of these small little flash crashes or fat finger trades. Yeah. So they'll place an order quite a distance below VWAP 
and actually look to get that lucky fill on when there's a uh, a little crash in the uh, price, whether it be in, through a computer or a, a human. So they're actually yeah taking advantage of these small little uh, problems with their algorithmic trading system. Yeah. Uh, another way that you can take advantage of it, I've seen, is through uh, midday announcements. Yeah. So occasionally the the price will get bid up or bid down um, because you have the suspended trading for that time that announcement comes out. Yeah. And then during that time, the market bids it up or down and then the market tries to revert back to the mean basically after that announcement had actually come out. Yeah. But the algorithm isn't that smart. So it will bid it up and join the other bidders. But yep. if you were to short into it, say, you could take advantage of it because quite straight after that uh, announcement comes out, you know, it comes back to the mean. Yeah, so you can take it fill on that short. Yeah, so I mean, people, a lot of people complain about, you know, bots being in their, uh, in their stocks, but there are ways to take advantage of them, um, because they aren't. Sometimes they aren't that smart, and you know they do obviously do provide that liquidity still. So, uh, yeah, knowing that this is happening in the market can like sort of give you some trading ideas as a normal person. Um, but it's sort of, it's one of those things where you've got to be watching what the algorithms are doing because you can guarantee that they are always changing, um, what they're doing. And you, if you're not really on top of it, trying to play them at their own game is probably not going to work out. It's dangerous. Like it's not, it's not something you want to do. Like I, when I first got into trading, uh, Nick Fabrio, he suggested, you know, stay away from the big market cap stocks. Yeah. Because you you go on there and you look at them, like say, for example, Cochlear. Yeah. And it's, there's no, there's no uh, buying or selling depth at all, pretty much. Yeah. And you look at it and there's like, you know, 10 shares uh, on the screen. You're like, what's going on? And it's because, you know, if someone were to fill their order, they would just place the order and then it instantly gets filled. Um, yeah, because a lot of it's behind the screen, like you can't actually see it, and it yeah. makes it it makes it really difficult to play the market um, when you have all these algorithms. So I suggest if you do want to trade, you know, don't <laughs> don't try and day trade large market cap stocks. You know, start it yeah. start it mid or below market cap stocks, and that way you've got more of a chance because there's less sophisticated algorithms that are actually playing in those stocks yeah and i guess the other thing to mention here we'll probably wrap it up pretty soon but the other thing to mention here is that there are a lot of dark pools operating in australia so there's um there's obviously the asx's dark pool um it's slipping my mind what it's called right now um but all the investment banks also actually offer dark pools as well um, so Credit Suisse runs the biggest one in Australia and I'm sure Goldman Sachs and Morgan how, Stanley and all of them. Are do you want to just say how a, how a dark pool actually operates? Because I'm not actually 100% sure myself. Sure. So a dark pool is, um, it's a kind of non-technical name given to an exchange where 
orders aren't disclosed on the exchange. So we're, we're talking a lot here about like looking at the market depth and you, so you can see what orders are placed and um, how many shares are being offered at what price. Essentially what a dark pool does is it just doesn't disclose those prices. Um, so it's used, it basically only investment banks um, will sort of operate in them. So if a client calls up an investment bank and wants to sell a large block of shares, they can put that order into a dark pool and not move the, uh, move the share price too much or at all because nobody knows that that order's there. Um, and so it's used, um, the, the quotes I've heard is that dark pools make up about 70% of the Australian market um, and more of the US markets just in terms of volume. Um, but I'm not 100% not clear on the rules around so do these, dark. Yeah. Do these get filled on the same market? So they get filled. They get filled in the dark pool. Yeah. Okay. That's what I thought. So it it like if you if you are trading in a dark pool, that order never touches the ASX. Okay. Um. So it allows you to trade these sort of large blocks of shares, and yeah. even if you're even if you're not a um trading large blocks of shares, you can also. There are strategies where if you've got relationships with the investment banks, you can trade in the dark pools. Yeah. Um, now, in Australia, there are quite strict regulations around um, how prices and trades have to be disclosed after the fact in dark pools. Yeah. Um, and prices have to be relatively close to the market price. Yeah. Um, so you couldn't have, say, a share that's trading on the ASX at 30 bucks go through at three hundred dollars on a dark pool because that's gonna that's gonna swing the markets like crazy um, yep. so it has to be relatively close obviously there's some discretion that can be used there because if you've got a it, it can literally be done by say if i'm a client a and i call up goldman sachs and i say hey i want to i want to sell three million shares of bhp yeah and the the banker on the other end of the phone says, okay, cool. Let me go find you a buyer. They can call up a buyer who they know is looking to buy a bunch of shares in BHP and say, say BHP is trading at 50 bucks. Yeah. Um, and you say, yeah, I want to sell it. I want to sell it at 50 bucks. Uh, um, so he can call up someone else. He can say, Hey, I've got, a, I've um, got some shares for you. Um, I know you're looking to buy at 47 right now, but what if we, what if we sold it to you at 49? Um, and they could make that deal literally over the phone and then exchange in the dark pool. It never touches the ASX apart from disclosures that are made after the fact. So yeah, where would you go to find, you know, where the actual dark pool trades or what they occur at? Like, how do you find what's, what's traded? Cross trades, are a part of that. So um, you, you'd obviously, if a large trade was going through, that disclosure happens and you'll see that come through as a cross trade on the market. Um, and obviously cross trades are bringing in other information as well. Yeah. So, um, so, so you can't just look at that and it's like all of this is um, happening on a dark pool. Some of it will be happening on the dark pool as well. But I'll just double check um, if there's somewhere else you can look at any dark pool activity. 
Um, and if I do find it, I'll drop it in the show notes or something. Um, but I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, I do know that, at least in the US, there is it's a, um, a large point of contention in regulation in the markets about when orders are placed through a, a bank or something, if that gets if that gets filled on a dark pool or if it gets routed somewhere else because obviously yeah. there's fees associated with a bank filling your order on their dark pool um, and I think the main regulation that sort of came out um, quite a few years ago probably over a decade ago now was called Regulation National Market System or Reg NMS yep. um, and essentially what that said was brokers are required to route their orders so that the trader gets the best price possible. Okay. Um, and so that obviously opened the door for front-running orders because you have if there's shares being offered on one exchange for a better price, but there's only like three shares on that exchange, like you're just opening the door for front-running of orders there. But reg- like if you're following regulations you have to put put it there to get those three shares at that better price before going somewhere else um and the result is your investor actually gets a much higher price when they buy the shares but the regulation means that you have to do that yeah i don't i don't mind too much about dark pools obviously they're necessary um for the market structure in order for people to actually get filled um, just as long as they're disclosing them uh, in a timely manner so yeah. you can see what those institutions are buying at. Yeah, as long as they are disclosing them, it keeps the market relatively um, relatively efficient um, because obviously the dark pool is, if, if say you've got a depth of 100,000 shares on um, the sell side and then someone comes in and wants to buy uh, four million shares like that's just going to run the market up super super high so the dark pools are going to facilitate that sort of uh sort of a trade and i mean distorting it, the market and i mean once it does come through and is disclosed to the market as a cross trade like it does it does run the market up just yeah. not in the same way that if you were to actually buy those shares so basically, yeah, if you had that four, crazy way. yeah, if you had that four million share order come through, and they need to buy them shares, obviously that's you're going to run it up. But if people see that there's a a hunger for those shares, they're going to start to to buy into the stock because of the momentum. Yeah. And you can um, imagine these algorithms. If there's a, a four million share trade that comes through, and there's only a hundred thousand shares being offered, like. Obviously, the algorithms are just going to go and shoot that offer price way, way up. And so that's where you get these sort of flash crashes happening because, like, you just can't help that. So the, the market, the dark pools increase the efficiency of the markets in some ways, but they decrease the efficiency of the markets in other ways. And so it's just something to be aware of um, that a lot of, um, a lot of trading um, at least that you're seeing on the ASX, a lot of the prices that you're seeing on the ASX and on other exchanges around the world isn't necessarily happening on that exchange. Yeah. 
For for for, I just want to quickly talk about the prices that you're seeing as well. Yeah. Um. There's one thing that I would say with algorithms that's actually been negative. So it is illegal on the Australian stock exchange. So it's called. So it's called. Uh, I don't know the technical term for it, but it's known as spoofing your order. So basically, you place a very large order and then remove it at the last second. So it appears as though the stock, you know, is going to be stronger or weaker than it is. So for example, if, you know, someone's trying to sell a large number of shares um, on market, obviously yep. with algorithms and stuff, they're going to try and run that stock down so that you get a worse price for that that sell basically yeah so what they'll try to do is and i mean it also affects the um discretional traders as well um but they'll try and prop the bid side up by placing uh, a lot of buyers there uh and you can sort of see it looks in a a, a certain pattern and it yeah. tries to encourage other traders to buy into their offers yeah so so it's essentially it, it's moving it, the markets it is. It's trying to play with uh, the market a little bit. This is illegal, but it does happen quite regularly um, on the ASX. And I mean, yeah. if you do realize uh, or can spot, you know, spoofing bids, especially it's it's mainly only relevant if you're, say, day trading. Um, because what happens is, say you're trying to enter a position, you look for momentum, you buy into that stock. And then because there was that hidden seller there kind of, they remove the bids that they'd had there that were propping up that side. And now yeah. basically you don't have any support now to sell back into. Yeah. So it once looked strong and now it doesn't. And all of a sudden you have a massive spread in order to sell back and actually get out of that position. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's, I was going to say, that's one of the reasons, one of the things uh, with algorithms and sort of the price that you're seeing, uh, it might not be the actual price. Uh, that you will get offered at or yeah. can sell back into basically is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, so some of these things to be aware of when when you're when you're trying to learn and trying to develop a trading strategy. Yeah. Um so I think it's probably a good idea to leave it there. Um we yeah. put a lot of stuff in this episode and we'll probably we'll have to revisit this sort of topic again on another episode. Yeah. I was gonna um, say because we didn't we didn't really uh mention anything to do with how someone might, you know get into algorithm trading. trading. Yeah. And maybe we'll see if we can uh, find someone who really knows what they're doing um, in terms of that and get them and on we, here. Yeah. We could sort of see their journey and how they yeah. have started from nothing and sort of moved up and got yeah. a functioning algorithm. Yeah. I know there are some places out there to learn it. You would, um, there's, I'll drop in the show notes. There's actually a place, a website out there where it facilitates um, backtesting for your strategies and it facilitates um, trading as well if um, you can basically submit your algorithm to them and if they think it's good they'll actually allocate you funds to trade with oh wow um, for your algorithm i'll drop it in the show notes um, obviously there's some ip issues there because um, you're kind of giving them your algorithm and whatnot so um, I'll drop it in the show notes. If you want to learn more about that, you can go and look at that. Um, I'm not endorsing it or not. In, like, I'm not telling you to go use it or not go to use it. Um, it's just, it's something that I know is out there. 
Um, and also, if you want to learn about um, institutional trading, sort of any any stock trading book will tell you a little bit about it. Um, and textbooks you can get um, will tell you what institutions are trying to do in terms of their stock trading. And read Michael Lewis's Flash Boys because that gets into HFT, how HFT develops and kind of finishes with the modern market and how HFT has kind of been removed a little bit from the market um, through different strategies used by investors to take away their opportunities at kind of predatory trading. And oh. I mean, that the HFT is super competitive now. Like a lot of the people there who started out early didn't have the same level of competition. So they've, they've started to have their margins squeezed yeah. quite a bit. So it's only really yeah. the best algorithms out there that have sort of started to succeed. And you've, you've had that drop off in high frequency trading and the number of, you know, yeah. the amount of trading that actually is high frequency on the market. And yeah. like you were saying before, with that institutional trading, extremely important to actually know, you know, how and why they're doing the trading they're doing yeah. in order to better your own investing and trading. Yeah. Anyway, so we'll leave it there and we'll be back next week with another episode. So uh, thanks for listening, guys, and we'll see you next week.